Peterson, who I've referenced before in this series, has a, just a wonderful book on the life of David. And uh, at one point in the book, he writes this, quote, One of the first things that strikes us about the men and women in Scripture is that they were disappointingly non-heroic. We do not find splendid moral examples. We do not find impeccably virtuous models. That always comes as a shock to newcomers to Scripture. Abraham lied. Jacob cheated. Moses murdered and complained. David committed adultery. Peter blasphemed. David did not live an idealized life. He lived an actual life. That's been one of the themes of this series. One of the key takeaways from beginning to end, David was a a real human being with so many beauties and also with so many frailties. And that was true till the very end of his life, which we're approaching in this sermon. Another way, perhaps, for you to think about it. Think about the characteristic plot lines of most stories. There's a, there's a rise to the top, right, from the main character. There's a crisis. There's overcoming the crisis. And then, usually, there's happily ever after. That's true in action movies. That's true in romantic comedies. That's true in drama. That's true in prestige TV. It's true in most stories. But it's not true here. Because David's life is a real life, an actual life. David has had his rise. David has had his fall. David has learned his lesson, but David doesn't get happily ever after, at least in this life. We see that here this morning in the story of Absalom's conspiracy and rebellion. We see that David struggles partly as a result of his own failures and and partly as a result of the sins of others. He struggles really to the very end. Now, I don't want that to discourage you today. In fact, I want it to encourage you and I think it can be life-giving for you this morning. Here's why. The stories of the Bible are reflections of our own lives in a lot of ways. We live actual lives, don't we? And not idealized lives. We continue to face struggles and uncertainties. We continue to fail and to fall. We continue to doubt. We continue to criticize. We continue to give in. Scripture points us to the reality of every single human life, even the great and famous ones of us like David. And the scriptures show us how deep the rabbit hole of our own brokenness goes. But it also shows us where our help comes from. God loves to be merciful and patient and caring to people who are struggling in actual life. Isn't that good news? He showed this to David and he wants to show it to you as well. So we're going to look at this story this morning in a couple of minutes and really at the surrounding narrative in three parts First, we're going to see a failure of nerve, and that's really going to be the background to 2 Samuel 15. Secondly, a fomenting rebellion, and then lastly, a fleeing king. So first, a failure of nerve. Last week, Matt preached an awesome sermon, thank you, Matt, um, on Nathan uh, confronting King David 
regarding his sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah. And, and we saw that David repented of his sin. David was restored. But as Matt said last week, um, the consequences of David's sin remain. And, and really, the rest of 2 Samuel plays out the consequences of his sin. The sins of David are repeated and exaggerated by his sons. In some ways, David is never the same again after the incident with Bathsheba. Let me tell you what happens in between where we ended last week and where we read today. Absalom is David's oldest living son. And Absalom has a half-brother named Amnon, same dad, different mom. And in 2 Samuel 13, Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar, who is Absalom's full sister. And Absalom is rightly and understandably furious about this atrocity, about this injustice. And he waits for the king, his father David, to do something about it. And uh, David, we read in 2 Samuel 13, is very angry, but he does nothing to Amnon. Absalom waits for two years and David still does nothing. He is passive. His nerve fails. So Absalom plans a dinner party and he invites Amnon and other siblings and he has Amnon murdered at the party in cold blood. Then Absalom flees. He leaves Jerusalem and he's gone for three years in exile. And again, when Absalom murders Amnon, David, the king, does nothing. He lets Absalom literally get away with murder. And David knows God's law. David knows that Absalom and Amnon, for that matter, should be arrested and that justice should be executed for their horrific crimes. But he's passive with Absalom just like he was with Amnon. And so Absalom's in exile, and eventually Joab, who is David's general, uh, convinces David, really he kind of tricks David in chapter 14, into bringing Absalom back into Jerusalem out of exile. And so David agrees to do it, and Absalom comes home. But David refuses to see him. And for two years, David passively, aggressively ices his son out of his life. And so Absalom lives in the city without seeing his dad, and he seethes, he stews on this. And he tries to get Joab to convince David to see him. And Joab ignores Absalom. And he tries to get Joab to convince David to see him again, and Joab still ignores Absalom. And then at the end of chapter 14, Absalom says, I know how to get your attention, Joab. I'm going to burn all of your fields. (laughs) And so he sets Joab's fields on fire. And of course, that gets Joab's attention. And he's like, dude, why are you burning all my fields? And he says, I knew I would get your attention. I want to go see my dad. And I want you to tell my dad that if he's going to kill me, just go ahead and kill me. But don't bring me into the city and not speak to me any longer. So David brings Absalom back into his presence And they seemingly reconcile. David, at the end of chapter 14, kisses him, and they both move on. That's the background to what Jennifer read in chapter 15. Now, last week we saw that God told David 
through Nathan, that one of the consequences of his sins was that he was going to raise up evil against David out of his own house. And that's what we're seeing unfold in this story. That is playing out. But here's what I want you to see. There is human responsibility here too. David has a failure of nerve. He won't confront sin, specifically the sins of his children, with both justice and with love. And really, David is, in so many ways, a tremendous failure as a dad. It's striking, really, to read. He's so wonderful and so gifted in so many areas, but as a father, he has a massive gap, a massive black hole in his life. It's, it's really a sad sight to behold. And I think there's a really important and significant lesson for us here from God's Spirit. Failure to confront sin, injustice and love, will lead to tragedy. David wants to do something that I think we can all understand. He wants to sweep Amnon's sin, and he wants to sweep Absalom's sin, these non-flattering problems in his kingdom and in his family, under the rug and forget about it. And he thinks, because I'm a man in power, perhaps I can do it. And so he's passive. He's unwilling to address the sins. But that's the sort of thing. These sorts of things, listen, friends, they don't just go away. That was true in David's life. And it's also true in our lives. No matter how much we try to hide it away, to avoid it, to detach from it, sin has a way of eating away at our lives, at our hearts, at our relationships, if it isn't addressed. And like David's life shows us, There's really no place where that is more true than in our families. Bruce Springsteen, one of my great heroes, uh, has written an autobiography called Born to Run. And if you know anything about Springsteen's music, you might know that he had a really bad relationship with his dad. And a lot of his songs are about his relationship with his dad. And, And he tells this story in his autobiography about one morning, early in the morning, when he and his wife were their first child, there was a sudden knock on their front door and he went and opened the door and he was surprised to find his father standing there uh, waiting for him to let him in. And, And the father and the son sat in the dining room and had coffee together and it became apparent to Springsteen over the conversation that his dad had driven all the way across the country to make both an apology and a petition. He wanted to apologize for the failures of his past and he wanted to petition now that he was going to be a grandfather for reconciliation. On the eve of Springsteen's transition into fatherhood, his own father was asking for the opportunity to repair their relationship. And Springsteen, reflecting on that story, writes this. We are ghosts or we are ancestors in our children's lives. We either lay our mistakes, our burdens upon them, and we haunt them, or we assist them in laying those old burdens down and we free them from the chain of our own flawed behavior. And as ancestors, we walk walk alongside of them and we assist them in finding their own way and some transcendence. Who would have known what a great theologian Springsteen would be? David became a ghost. 
He became a ghost in many ways. In the lives of his children. Not an ancestor. The lesson of this story, among others, is that God calls us to be ancestors by, in part, speaking the truth in love. By confronting sin with justice and mercy, both theirs and ours. And trusting God to work it out for good. So we see a failure of nerve. Secondly, we see a fomenting rebellion. David might think things are okay with Absalom now. It sure seems that that's what he thinks. Uh, He underestimates, though, the threats that Absalom becomes. We see Absalom here at the beginning of chapter 15 doing a couple of things. For one, he is positioning himself. He's crafting a really significant persona. In chapter 14, we read Absalom is super handsome. In fact, his hair gets cut once a year. And if there had been TVs, I'm sure this would have been a reality show, like Absalom's annual haircut. And they would weigh how much his hair weighed after each haircut. He's good-looking dude, beautiful, strapping, handsome, young, stallion of a prince, right? And we should be reminded here what we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel, that outward appearance is deceiving, but God looks on the what? Heart. God looks on the heart. But Absalom, good-looking, beautiful man, goes out and he gets a chariot. I think this is hilarious. I love the way it's translated. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot. And uh, there are no chariots yet in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's full of hills. Chariots don't make a lot of sense. But Absalom gets the first chariot, and then he gets 50 men to kind of follow him around in his chariot as his own personal retinue. Now, if you've been a curious reader of the Bible, if you've read First and Second Samuel closely, this would also probably scare you. Remember, a generation and a half before, Samuel, when Israel's asking for a king, Samuel's like, you don't want a king, Israel. And Israel's like, we do want a king. That's our solution. We want to be like the nations. Give us a king. And Samuel says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. But here's what he's going to do. He's going to come riding in with chariots. He's going to take your horses. He's going to oppress you and cause injustices to arise among you. That's exactly what we're seeing begin to unfold in Absalom. You see here that Absalom really is the man that Saul thought David was. He's crafting a persona, an image, and he's also a really good politician. Did you catch what he does? He sits in the gate, which was kind of the the meeting square of ancient cities. He would get there early in the morning, and everyone who would come into the city to meet with the king about an issue of injustice that they wanted to present to him, Absalom would cut off. He would cut them off and he would say, verse 3, Hey, I think you've got a really good case here. Your claims are good and right. Sorry, but there's no one that the king has designated to to hear you. The, The government is the problem. And then he would subtly hint at his own ability to do the job better. Look at verse 4. If only I were judge in the land. Notice he doesn't say, if only I were king. That would have been way too blatant. He's much more crafty. If only I were the chief justice of the Supreme Court, right? If only I had a really powerful position, then every man with a dispute or cause could come to me, and I guarantee you, I'm justice. Now, listen, guys, come on. Doesn't that sound like every politician ever when they're campaigning? 
Absalom is saying here, I am going to lower your taxes. I'm going to raise your entitlements and I'm going to balance the budget and every need you bring to me, I promise I'm the only person that can fix it. He is a crafty, cunning politician. He also goes down and meets with the people on their level. He would handshake. I imagine him shaking hands like politicians shake hands. You know, they kind of pull you in when they're shaking their hand and hug you. Kind of a domination sort of move. At least that's my opinion as to what politicians are doing. And so Absalom's an, he's an amazing politician. And what he's doing is creating discontent. He's sabotaging David and David's kingdom right underneath David's nose. And then we see that he takes the crucial step from sabotage to outright rebellion. He asks his dad, verse 7, if he can go and make a sacrifice that he said he's vowed to do, which he hasn't. This is an outright lie. And uh, it's hard to imagine David, by the way, with all of his political wisdom and experience, not being somewhat suspicious of Absalom here. This has been happening for four years, we know. It's likely that David knew what Absalom was doing at the city gate, but he says anyway, go in peace. And Absalom goes in pretense and in deceit. And we read in verse 10, he he sent secret messengers through all the tribes saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And he's also, we read, he's gathered a strong group of co-conspirators, including this guy, Ahithophel, who was a part of David's cabinet and is Bathsheba's grandfather, so he might have a good reason to go against David. Eventually, David gets word of the plan Absalom is hatching, and he kicks it into king mode again. Finally, he gets out of Dodge right away. We read about that in verse 13 and following. And he goes into exile, David the king, out of the city with a group of loyal subjects with him. And we learn later in the story that Absalom does indeed come into Jerusalem and he takes the city and he sleeps with David's concubines in a tent set up on the same roof that David had had an affair with Bathsheba on and for a time successively usurps his father's throne. There's so much that we could say about Absalom. Here's what I want us to think about together. What a vivid contrast. Absalom as pretended king paints with David at his best moments as king and more significantly with David's son, our Lord Jesus, with Jesus's kingship and with Jesus's kingdom. As we've seen throughout this series, God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, nor is God's king like the kings of this world. On one level, It's easy to be impressed with Absalom. He's savvy, he's suave, he's handsome, he's impressive. He would make a great prince. He's a gifted political operative, so much so that he makes a fool of his dad, who is no slouch. Absalom is cunning, Absalom is sharp, Absalom is patient with his leadership, and Absalom is ruthless. He's exactly the kind of king that most nations and most people would love to have. That's proven out in the story. He, we read in verse 6, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Conspiracy grew strong. But the scriptures tell us again and again, friends, listen, this way, the way of Absalom, the way of the worldly kingdom is destined for failure and destruction. How different is our King Jesus? Jesus emptied himself. 
taking the form of a servant. Rather than taking his dad's throne, which was rightfully his, he humbly left it for our sake. Jesus, Mark tells us in his gospel, came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom. Jesus uses his leadership to save and to serve his people selflessly. Even now he does that in our hearts through the ministry of his spirit. This king and this kingdom live in the way of peace and trade in the currency of mercy. What a gift it is to be under the rule of a Lord who is so gentle and so kind and so wonderfully pleasant to us, his people. Lastly, we see a fleeing king. As David leaves the city, just imagine yourself there with him. This has to be one of his darkest days. Imagine the pathos of what we read there in verse 17. The king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. I imagine them turning around and looking down into the city of Jerusalem, which is surrounded by hills, and David looking at the city and the palace that he had built and weeping as he has to leave in exile. David's entire early life was an unbending trajectory towards the kingdom, and now at the end of his life, it's not happily ever after, is it? His journey is reversed. This is going backwards. This is an anti-conquest. His kingdom leaves him with a startling suddenness. He's near the very end of his 40-year rule, and he's experiencing the tragedy of losing everything he'd spent his life for. He's experiencing the tragedy of an end that he didn't plan. And so he walks up the Mount of Olives, barefoot, weeping as he went with his head covered. This is a real life, not an idealized life. How does David respond? How does David respond when at the end, it's all in shambles for him? When everything has been taken from him, when the consequences of his own failures combine with the evil of others to make a mess of his entire life, how does David respond? What does he do? He relies, as he has for his whole journey, on the steadfast love of God. How do we know that? There are actually some hints in the text, but the main reason we know that David went out into exile in faith is because of the song that he wrote on his way out. We know it now as Psalm 3, which opens with David saying this. By the way, the subtitle is, When David fled from Absalom, his son. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you are a shield about me. My glory, the lifter of my head. You see, David, even at the end, when everything seemed to be falling apart, was able to see through the ruin that his life was at this moment and trust in God because he knew that God had made irrevocable 
unviolable promises to him. David knew that God had always been faithful to him even when he had been unfaithful. He knew that God is merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. David knew that even though he didn't see how God would work this for his good, that as he says at the end of Psalm 3, salvation is from the Lord. Listen, In the middle of David's hardest moments, God was still there for him in his grace. And David knew it. He knew it in faith. Friends, it is the same for us. When life doesn't go happily ever after, when there's ruin everywhere you look, when it all seems to be caving in and falling apart, God is there. How do we know? Because another David has come. And like his ancestor, the son of David crossed the brook Kidron on his way out of Jerusalem. John's gospel tells us that Jesus, the son of David, like his ancestor, went up the mountain of olives, just like David does here, knowing that he was going to be exiled from his home, from his palace, from the presence of his father. And Jesus prayed. He prayed for you and he prayed for me. He said, I have given them the words you gave me, father, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be in truth. Like David, Jesus left the city to save the city. Like David, Jesus went into exile, but not as a consequence for his sins, as David had, but as a consequence for our sins, which he came to rescue us out of. We can trust that God is there in love and mercy, even when it isn't a life happily ever after, even when it seems hard to the very end because Christ has come and died to ransom us, and been raised up again, guaranteeing that this world is not the final chapter, but only the beginning of a life eternal in the new world that he will make. Amen.